At the onset, we knew it was a respiratory disease. We knew that we needed a certain level of protection, but there were so many questions. Can you get it from a countertop? Can you get it from a person just walking down the hallway? You know, we just didn't, we knew so little about this virus. Welcome to Emergency Room for the COVID Diaries, a podcast that tells the story of how the COVID-19 pandemic swept across America from the perspective of the staff of a large American hospital. Hi, my name is Guy Madison. I'm a registered nurse. I've been working in the emergency rooms and ICUs of Harborview Medical Center. I was initially reassigned when the first wave of COVID hit us in early 2020 to COVID duties, which is the basis for these stories that we're presenting in this podcast. These COVID diaries will introduce you to my colleagues and co-workers who showed up every day of the pandemic to treat and care for those taken by this deadly disease. I'm Matthew Hall, a journalist with absolutely no medical background whatsoever. Not true. The other day I did have to apply a Band-Aid to a a kid who gashed their knee open. So now I'm feeling slightly more uh, authentic. But we're both here to provide a rarely heard inside account of how frontline medical staff responded to the virus and how they cared for those infected by it. I'm the least interesting thing about this podcast, but I am here to ask all the dumb questions you've all been desperate to ask. Questions like, Guy, what's the deal with masks? Do they really protect you? Do they really protect other people? Why are we wearing them? Good question, actually. Interesting and good question, and the answer is a little bit of both, or they do both. They both protect you and others. The reason we're wearing masks, the sort that everyone wears out every day when you go to the grocery store or you go out in public, is a very simple mask. And that mask is there to protect things coming out of your mouth, be them spit or tiny aerosolized particles of saliva, because this is where COVID-19 is transmitted. It's a respiratory virus and respiratory meaning it comes from the lungs. And when we exhale, when we breathe, when we talk, little particles come from inside our lungs out of our mouth. We put a mask on so that those little particles stay stuck to the mask and they don't fly onto other people's mouths and nose and eyes and potentially give them the virus. Now, the next part of it, are you protected by wearing a mask? So some masks that you can wear, like an N95, everyone's heard of those, do protect those particles for coming into you. So it's a twofold thing, if that makes sense. Some masks that are very strong masks will protect you inhaling those particles from another person. But really, the principle behind the general masking in public is that we want to protect others from ourselves. We may not know that we have the disease and we want to stop any chance of us transmitting, unknowingly transmitting that disease to others. What do you think, Matthew? Does that sum it up? Almost two years after this virus has uh, appeared, now we know the answer to why we're wearing masks. Or at least we're still talking about why we're wearing masks and people are questioning why we're wearing masks. But there we are. The other thing I like is that masks, some masks have become fashion accessories. 
and you see some great designs out there. Um, in episode one, we spoke to Vanessa Makarowitz, the Infection Prevention Operations Manager at Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. Uh, she told us what happened when COVID-19 first swept into the United States. So if you have not heard that episode yet, episode one. Yes, a fantastically fascinating perspective from Vanessa, who was really there at ground zero. The first cases were here in Seattle, and as an infection prevention operations manager, she was literally making the rules about how we were going to deal with this outbreak. Then we moved on to episode two, when we spoke to my friend and colleague, Matthew Caze. Um, Matthew is a critical care registered nurse at Harborview, and he's been working continuously throughout the pandemic in the ICUs, caring for these patients who are critically ill with COVID-19. He provides us with a great perspective on how these people actually get treated, how we help them, how we help them breathe better, how we help them stay alive, essentially. And so that's episode two. So in this episode, episode three of Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries, we're going to speak with Dr. Chloe bryson Khan. She's Professor of Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington, uh, and she also has many other job titles that she will uh, tell you about herself. And having already met Dr. Bryson Khan, I can tell you she's someone worth listening to. She's got some amazing uh, stories to tell about her experience. So, Chloe, uh, if you can just introduce yourself and tell us what your job title is and what that actually means. Sure. So I am Chloe Bryson Khan. I am an infectious diseases physician at Harborview Medical Center, and I also am the associate medical director for infection prevention and control at the hospital. Um, so that means that I see folks in the hospital, take care of patients in the hospital who come in with infections or things that look like infections to help people um, crack those cases. It's sort of an amazing field of medicine and something I feel super lucky to be able to do. And as the Associate Medical Director for Infection Prevention at Harborview, I'm sort of tasked along with the rest of the team um, with helping prevent people from getting sick at our hospital, and that is both our patients and our employees. So how do you wake up one day when you're either a girl in school or a young woman studying or someone being a nurse and say, man, infections are where it's at? What draws you to that part of medicine? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think there's a couple of things that make it absolutely amazing. I think one of them is that it is a field of medicine where sort of all the inequity of our world comes to its head. Um, and the infections that people get exposed to, the diseases that people have related to infections really are due to the kinds of conditions and risks and the world that we all live in as individuals. And so it's a really amazing field of medicine where we get to advocate for our patients and help our patients tremendously in these worlds that they're coming from. And it's super interesting because of that. But I think the other thing about it that's very unique, at least in terms of sort of the internal medicine specialties, so the non-surgical specialties, is that we get to cure people. 
which is not something that medicine doctors get to do very often. Um, and so someone comes in with an infection, I can figure out what it is, I can give them medicine. And some of those infections are curable and folks can walk out and be done with it for the rest of their lives. And that is really rewarding. So when, when you say infection, what do you actually mean? Give us some examples of things that are infections. Sure. So just thinking about the kinds of stuff that I was dealing with this week. So uh, a bacteria called Staph aureus. I think we all have heard of MRSA before. That's like a resistant kind of Staph aureus. Causes all sorts of infections in humans from like skin infections to um, complications of deep, deep infections like an infection on the heart or in the bones and muscles. And so that's the kind of thing that we see at Harborview a lot. It's a common thing among people who inject drugs. It's a big risk factor for getting these kinds of infections. So we treat these often at Harborview. Um, other types of infections like bad skin and soft tissue infections, like sometimes we call them necrotizing infections where the, the bacteria are just eating away at the flesh of people. And that's the kind of infection that we as infectious disease folks and surgeons get to treat together. Um, uh, what else? COVID, for example, unfortunately, is an infectious disease. Um, all sorts of things. So bacteria, funguses, and viruses. So, so that all sounds pretty complicated on a regular day. How did COVID throw that upside down <laughs> in, 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 what you, in your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, so COVID, gosh, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that. COVID has completely changed the course of my day-to-day my -day work. Um, I, I used to spend a lot of time um, working on something called antimicrobial stewardship, where essentially we are helping other, other providers better prescribe antibiotics. There's a big problem in the world of antibiotic resistance. And so part of my job was trying to help curb the misuse of antibiotics. Um, I have to say, I haven't been able to focus on that for more than a, a couple of moments since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. Um, because everything that I do, everything that I think about these days is COVID. You know, it has sort of thrown into chaos every single piece of the course of a day at the hospital. Um, so thinking about keeping visitors who come into our hospital safe, patients safe, our staff safe, our faculty safe, every single thing that I think about. Even when I walk down to the cafeteria and see too many people sitting together at a table, I, I can't do anything but walk directly to them and ask them to spread out. Um, and that is like the reality of my world right now. And I will, I will just put in a, a, a little endorsement there that actually I was walking the corridor the other day and I saw Chloe stop somebody, a visitor perhaps, and ask them to wear their mask correctly. So she's not kidding. She's an enforcer. Which is what we need, right? I don't so, know. <laughs> I don't want to be the enforcer. I want people to, to manage themselves. But I think oh, that's been yeah. a big lesson of COVID, right? Yeah. For the last 18 months since last February, your regular job has changed its focus almost entirely onto COVID, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. I mean, I look at my calendar and I like 90% of what I'm doing is COVID related right now. That's huge. What would you say has been the most difficult challenge in these 18 months and particularly at the height of the pandemic when we were having the really high admission rates, high census of patients in the hospital? 
Yeah. So, and I would say, Guy, unfortunately, we're right back in that. We're sort of near peak again, right? I mean, not quite, but it feels very similar right now. We have 20, almost 25 patients at Harborview with active COVID, lots of rule outs. So people who Mm -hmm. come in who we're not sure if they have COVID or not, we have to to treat them as if they do until we know more. Um, It feels crazy right now. Um, So I think... The hardest thing with all of this has just been like the absolute stamina necessary to keep up with all of this. It is just relentless. Um, And I think this time around feels harder than the first time because everyone's so tired, myself included. I think our entire team is just wiped. And yet the amount of work that we have to do to try to keep folks safe is exactly what it was before. I think folks at the bedside are potentially even more wiped than we are dealing with all kinds of trauma from the last year, year and a half. And just trying to help people continue to do these exhausting things. Gosh, it's awful. I would just add there that it is exhausting, particularly for the people who are charged with taking care of the patients. And just to put that in perspective with some numbers, for our hospital, our census recently, the amount of patients inside our hospital has been at 117, 118%. So if you think that a hospital, when it's full, is 100%, we are past capacity. We're being overwhelmed, essentially. So what does that mean in real terms, though? Are there people being treated on the sidewalk or, or what? what? What does it really mean? So fortunately, we're not at sidewalk use yet. Um, I don't think we'll ever get there. I hope we'll never get there. Um, but there are hospitals in Idaho that are using teaching conference rooms and things like that for their care right now. For us at Harborview, it means that these big open rooms that we call boarding areas are full of patients who should be upstairs in the hospital in, you know, individual or double patient rooms. So it's, I mean, I, I think as a patient, it's a really tough experience to be in one, you know, parts of our ER. We don't have a big ER, but parts of the emergency room are sort of taken away from emergency room patients and used as a place, we call them borders, for patients to just sit and wait until a hospital bed upstairs becomes available. And these are rooms with like eight, nine other incredibly sick patients stacked in there side by side. And so I think for a patient, it's a really hard experience. For someone who's trying to prevent the spread of COVID, it's like an absolute nightmare. And that, yeah, that is, I mean, Guy, how many borders did we have this week? Like 30? Yeah, which is a high amount for us. Um, But still, you know, Matthew, to sort of explain the situation, that's somebody who's in a bed for an extended period of time. Sometimes it can be 24 to 48 hours that they spend sitting in a non-hospital bed waiting to be placed in the hospital. So if you can imagine sitting on a gurney in a hallway in an emergency room, that's what's happening, essentially. Right. Yeah. And I I think we've been lucky to have enough, just barely enough employees to take care of these folks. But there are other hospitals that don't and they're closing parts of their hospital because they don't have the people to even Mm -hmm. consider having someone sit in the hallway waiting for a bed. So, Chloe, you said it's exhausting and it's exhausting professionally. You guys are not robots. You're humans. How does all that and the relentless nature of having to repeat, repeat for 18 months, how does that affect you personally? You're doing these long shifts and then you go home. What happens? What do you take home? 
Yeah. Hopefully and, not COVID, but what do you take home? Yeah. So, and maybe Guy can speak to the sort of the taking care of COVID patients day in and day out and the exhaustion of that part of things, because he certainly has bared witness to much of that. Um, for me, I actually, I don't get time off. I don't get to end a long shift and come home because for me, like the hospital doesn't sleep and the risk to our patients and our employees lasts all day long. Um, and all night long. And so things can be happening that we need to know about all the time. I mean, I just remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I was waking up at 3 a.m. every day to to try to look at the patients who had just come in sort of under investigation for COVID and to assess whether their tests had come back negative or not and decide whether we could safely clear precautions for those patients. So we sort of, when we think somebody could have COVID, we take care of them in a very special way with special masks and eye protection and gowns and gloves and in special parts of the hospital. And this was sort of before we knew much about COVID in the first place. And you know, we really couldn't risk it and clear people with a negative test when they really did have the disease. And so Guy would text me in the middle of the night and I would wake up and we'd clear five or six patients together. I mean, this like never ended for us. Um, you know, I don't even have any words for that. Yeah, just to clarify, Chloe would be at home, not at the hospital, not you know at her desk or in her clinic. She'd actually be at home with her family. And then I was lucky because I'm just on shift. So I would go, because I'm a nurse, when my shift ends, I go home, I take some memories with me and stuff, but nobody pages me or calls me at home. But it was a different situation for our infection prevention team. They were on call continuously and have been essentially this whole time. Yeah. We've done a better job getting, you know, a little bit more streamlined at the hospital where I'm not needed every night at 3 a.m. anymore, fortunately. Um, but you know, 10 p.m. I get a get an email that we've had an exposure and we have 20 employees who were potentially exposed. And that's something that we still have to deal with every night in the middle of the night when it happens and make sure that we're doing everything that we can to identify these things and then keep people safe, as safe as possible. So, so this is a complicated job and a complicated profession and not to take too much of a side panel here, but your mental health is very important. Do you guys have people to talk to about what's going on in your professional life besides your families or whatever? Is there any facility for that or are you just left on your own? You know, we've had a couple of the mental health folks at Harborview check in on us because I think rightfully so they were very worried about us and, and should be still. Um, I think they check in from time to time. But, you know, I am fortunate to have a very supportive family, a therapist for a mother, and a lot, a lot of belief that therapy is important and good and much therapy in my life. And so um, I have had those resources, but I'm not sure our whole office has. But yeah, no, it's, it's, I don't, I think it's going to take years to unpack the trauma of this for all of us. And I think it's been different for frontline folks versus people in infection prevention who still sort of are doing this day in, day out, every single day with no break. Not to say that one is harder than the other. I think both are awful. But like Guy said, at least he got to go home and turn his phone off and not be, not be accountable to anyone for at least 24 hours, hopefully, maybe sometimes 12. I have, you know, aside from maternity leave, have not had that. Wait, wait, wait. Maternity leave? Guy? 
<laughs> you never talked about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, this is actually interesting in terms of you know what has happened in personal life as opposed to professional. You've had one of the most amazing things that can happen in life. You've you've had a child, and this all took place during COVID, <laughs> which is amazing and incredible. Did that life changing event? Do you think it was altered or melded in any way by the presence of COVID and and the work you were doing? I mean, it obviously couldn't be not so, right? Yeah, I mean, gosh. So I got pregnant right before we started hearing about this, like, <laughs> coronavirus in China that would maybe or maybe not make it here. We were calling it the novel coronavirus then. Um, and I was six weeks pregnant when I think Vanessa talked to you guys about this when we started going to do those home visits. And I remember when they asked me to do a home visit, I hadn't told anyone I was pregnant yet because I was just barely pregnant. And they were like, okay, Chloe, let's go. Let's go to someone's house to assess them for COVID. And I literally was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to tell them or I'm going to have to go into somebody's house. I mean, because we knew nothing. And there's, you know, being pregnant is an immunocompromising state. And so there's a lot of infections that are much worse for pregnant people than non-pregnant people. And I remember just thinking like, oh my God, am I going to have to risk my health to try to take care of other people? And so I had to tell Vanessa, like told Vanessa the next day, like broke down in tears in her office because I felt so guilty not being able to be a hundred percent part of the team. So I think that was sort of how it all started. I just to answer your question, Guy, I think I got really lucky and got a really good kid who's super chill. And I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic. I think he sort of was made in the time of tremendous stress and came into this world knowing that like he couldn't be an extra stress for me. Um, He could only be good. And so I, you know, whether that's true or not, who knows, but I have felt so fortunate to have such like a happy, content sort of, he just like approaches the world with joy and safety and just has been such a contrast to everything else in my life. So um, I could not be more thankful. And I, I, I think I needed this as much as anything else this year. Do you think he's Congratu- congratulations? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. It sounds like you, you feel like he's made you more resilient. I think so. I think so. I don't know that I've ever framed it like that, but yeah, he gives me some depth to my, to my emotions and to my ability to move on. He sort of requires that. And of course, uh, there was only one name you could give your your son, right? His name's Corona. Uh, yes. Something. Yes, Corona is his name. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I love a happy ending. <laughs> so, is it possible to have a a high point in in crises? A, some a, a positive high point in these emergency crises situations. Or, or is it all low? It, do you have wins? Yeah, I think so. Uh, <laughs> gosh, when I, I was thinking about that leading up to this and couldn't think of anything, but now that you've asked it, I actually think I'm really proud of Harborview. I'm really proud of the University of Washington. I think we sort of, I mean, we got hit first in the country, our area did, and we stepped up and came up with all these amazing things that, you know, I I think helped the rest of the country respond. Our testing capacity was like right on schedule, ready to respond. Our our lab had the first FDA 
emergency use approved COVID test of any academic hospital in the country, which is just unbelievable. And so when we started seeing patients, we had a test in our lab, which, you know, folks were waiting days all over the rest of the country and we could turn this around in 12 hours and know what our patients had. It was unbelievable. I think the Harborview response and Guy was incredibly instrumental in this, um, was amazing. We just like all were in it and all together, we came up with, you know, brand new protocols and rolled them out in a moment's notice, which is just unheard of in hospitals. And so I think that gives me tremendous pride and that feels, you know, it doesn't last long, but it sort of comes in sprinkles still to this day. And I don't want to be a buzzkill, but what for you personally was, was a low? Um, yeah, I think from, so my personal lows and I, I may cry when I say this cause it feels, it feels really serious. Um, and I think I haven't quite, haven't quite gotten past it yet, but I'm, I'm getting there. Every single employee or patient, and there have not been many of them, but there have been some who got sick in our hospital in the beginning of COVID felt like my fault. And sorry. No, that's that's fine. Take a second. Can you say why you felt that? Why you felt you you, you alone, or was it our fault as 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 a team that we that we didn't do a good job? No, my fault. Could have somehow done better, taught someone better, mm. anticipated better, known better. And I know, like, intellectually, I know that that's not true, that, like, all of us were doing our absolute best and things are going to happen. Like, this disease does not care. We can do our best and this virus transmits anyways, you know, on some level. But it it felt and still, I think, must feel a little bit based on my reaction right now that I could have somehow, somehow done better. And I think, you know, it feels less like that now. Um, I think because we've learned so much and I've seen so many other amazing hospital systems with amazing people struggle with just the same where sometimes patients and sometimes employees are going to get COVID in the hospital or are going to get COVID in a place and we don't know and we can't say it wasn't a hospital. And so I, I think this, you know, it happens with flu. We know it happens. That never felt like a personal affront. Um, but this did somehow. And that's been my absolute low. When I was um, working as the COVID coordinator, I, I'm, I made a couple of mistakes with clearing patients. And the stress level is incredibly high because the mistakes that I made, um, I put other staff in danger by making that that mistake. And you, it's, it's very anxiety provoking to have made that mistake and to have to wait to see if there's a repercussion from that mistake. And I'm so thankful that the couple of times I slipped up, I didn't hurt. I didn't hurt one of our staff members by making that slip up. But this is, I think that part of it is that is that heightened level of anxiety and that heightened level of responsibility that makes you, and obviously it's Chloe's responsible for a lot more of that than I ever was. So I th- maybe that's part of what what drives the that feeling, do you think, Chloe? Yeah, I think so. And I, I think like it just, I mean, this 
this infection is so dangerous. It is so dangerous and the consequences can be so dire, especially before our employees were vaccinated, that it just felt like there's got to be a way that we can keep them all so 100% safe. Like, how do we justify continuing to do this work if we can't all be 100% safe? And I think the reality is that we can't. Nowhere in this world are we 100% safe from infections and certainly not in hospitals. I, I guess I guess the context for, for some people is if we make an error in making this podcast, it's we forgot to press record and we're going to be inconvenienced. If you work in another job and you make a mistake, you might lose money. It might be millions of dollars. It might be $10. It's money. In your line of work, if you make a mistake, it has incredibly serious consequences that often can't be fixed and people can die. Yeah, definitely. And, I, and I'll just add, Matt, that like getting COVID in the hospital is not even always because someone made a mistake, right? It's because right. you got unlucky and that hospital bed in the hallway was right across from another hospital bed in the hallway where someone wouldn't wear their mask and we didn't know they had COVID. I mean, it's like not even things that are blatant mistakes can put you at risk for this virus or even subtle mistakes. You can do every single thing right and still get sick. I really wonder if there's one thing, Chloe, that caught you off guard, because obviously, you know, this is your life work. You are an infectious disease doc. That's what you deal with all the time. And you're very experienced. So you're used to being in control of these situations where you're, you're dealing with infections. Is there something with COVID-19 that was completely unexpected, caught you off guard, perhaps? Hmm. Great question. I think a, a million things <laughs> caught me off guard. I think, you know, we sort of thought we understood how this virus spread early on, like all other viral respiratory infections. That's what we thought. And it has turned out that that is not the case, probably A. And B, we probably don't understand how other viral respiratory infections spread anyways. So that's been, I think, an incredibly humbling experience for all of us when we think about COVID. So let's just go back briefly. How did we think it spread? And how has that changed? Okay, great. So we thought it spread probably like any other virus would spread, like probably the flu virus would spread, um, which is by what we assumed were big droplets. So when you sneeze, big particles come flying out of your nose and mouth, and they're heavy, and they fall to the ground quickly. And so I can be in a room with a bunch of people and sneeze, and somebody 40 feet away from me is not going to get sick from the virus that I have. Um, we also, with most other viruses, think that you have to be sick to be infectious. And so most of our infection control processes for those other viruses have revolved around like, okay, do you have symptoms? Okay, you do great. We'll test you and we'll put you in the proper precautions. Um, but with COVID, people can come in and be super infectious and have no symptoms in the two days leading up to their symptoms, or they never become symptomatic at all. And that person is incredibly high risk to all of the folks around them. And it seems like much beyond just a couple of feet. And so I think those are the things that really took us by surprise was this ability to spread when you had no symptoms 
and the distance that COVID's able to go compared to some other respiratory viruses. So we thought, you know, just don't come to work sick. Don't sneeze on other people. Don't cough. If you're coughing, stay home. Easy. And it turns out that that is not at all the case. Right, because they were the protocols that we had before, which actually worked fine. We didn't have giant outbreaks of, of regular influenza in the workplace, right? Little ones, but yeah, generally. Yeah. But, but yeah, but they were effective, those yeah. simple, but they're not effective now, right? No, I mean, in this, Matt, I mean, I just to like explain the scope of how how much screening we have to do to try to keep other folks safe. So patients come into the hospital, they get hospitalized. No matter what is happening, they get a COVID test on day one. They get another test on the third day. They get another test on the seventh day. And then every week after that, because folks, we just never know. There's like mm. nothing that should make anyone feel reassured. Not even those tests, unfortunately. Sort of a bummer. <laughs> it is a bummer, but we keep, you know, in, in my area now where, where I usually work when I was, went back to, from being reassigned, you know, we're optimizing patients for surgery and, um, we test them 72 hours before they come in for their surgery. But really, you know, a lot can happen in those 72 hours, right? Yeah, luckily it doesn't very often, but no. it's sure going <laughs> to we, we watch all the time to make sure it's not. I'm horrified that we're going to start seeing people people get that test. Us all feel great, and then they show up for the day of their surgery with rip and COVID. Yeah, but like you say, we that's part of your job, right, is this hypervigilance to see if things are changing like that, if that is the scenario that's happening, and then how to shut it down, right? Exactly, yeah. Following up for that, uh, you know, what caught you off guard. And that's a great answer, by the way. And I think that that really helps people understand um, that this isn't just a case of the flu, as some people are apt to put it, that it is a lot more serious. Um, what would you have done differently? Or what do you think people could learn from what what you developed and, and what our team did at Harborview for the future? Oh, gosh. Okay. So what I know it's kind have... of a giant, <laughs> giant question. Two, two giant questions. <laughs> questions. Okay. I mean, I think... What feels like a huge loss to me right now and a huge lost opportunity is that like everyone responded so well at the beginning with all the attention from our country, from our communities, from our hospital on stopping this infection and keeping hospitals open and keeping people safe. And it was amazing, right? When we think about how, how awesome it was at the very, very beginning of COVID and now with like a very similar surge and craziness, like nobody cares. I mean, it feels maybe, maybe I'm out of touch, but you guys, you guys tell me it feels like nobody cares anymore to support healthcare workers, to keep hospitals open, to do their part, to make things run in these hospitals that are at 115% capacity and have no ability to take on anything else. There's concerts, there's huge conferences, there's events. People are like going to bars and restaurants I mean, things that like, we can't take that on if, if more people get sick. We don't have, we don't have anything left to give. Um, and so I think the lesson to me is like, as with all things, the implementation was good, but the maintenance process, like how do we keep a public engaged and caring about what's going on in the hospitals and, and themselves? Um, 
to be able to to maintain this response for as long as we're going to need to because this is not going anywhere you know i deep in my soul feel like we're going to be still doing the same in 2024 and that's a long ways away and i don't know how we're going to do it so that that said we have vaccinations now many most all of us are used to wearing masks mm-hmm. yet we have this debate where people are saying, oh, no vaccines, I'm not getting vaccinated, or I'm not wearing a mask. And even political leadership in some places in the United States are mandating you can't, they're banning the wearing of masks by a law. As a health professional and an infectious disease expert, I'm not going to put things in your mouth, but Literally, especially infectious disease. But does your head explode? Oh, my gosh. Thank you for saying it like that. Yes, my head is exploding. I mean, this is insanity what we're doing. We know the tools, and yet we've made it political. It's a, it's such a mistake, and it's such a missed opportunity, and it, it feels devastating. I don't know what else to say. I have a good friend who works in Tennessee, and she's a pediatrician. The amount of sick kids she's saying, seeing in a state where they're not allowed to have a mask mandate um, for the schools is crazy. It is just crazy. And I don't know, as a healthcare provider, how, how do you even fight that? She spends all of her day begging and calling school boards and fighting to try to get masks on students in school to keep them safe. And she can't. Yeah, I guess, well, we're lucky in Washington that we do not have that problem and Matt in New York. But like you say, how are we, going, are we still going to be living with this in 2024 if we still have large sections of the country? People can move between those sections of the country where there's different protocols in place. Are we just going to have this burn of COVID, like this fire of COVID forever? Or can we get enough vaccination done? I don't honestly know. I hope so. I really hope so. Um, But I just, you know, thinking about, so Seattle, right, which is where we are, over 70% of the eligible population is vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And yet still our hospital is going down right now with, you know, all of the cases plus COVID on top of it. And so the amount of vaccine needed in communities to be able to not burn every time we have a new surge like this I just, I can't even wrap my head around that. There are so many people who are not on board that we're going to have to get there. Yeah. And I mean, regionally, it's the same as the whole country, right? Like, even though we have a high vaccination rate within the city of Seattle, our surrounding areas in Washington are not necessarily uh, at that same rate. And that's causing us problems. Yeah. But And it doesn't take that many is what I think we're learning right now. Right. So as a person who's not in your in your business I hear of people who work in in as nurses some doctors who are anti-vaccines so help me out here and explain to me how that could be so Matt I have no idea okay, I have no I mean there are <laughs> you know there are people who work in healthcare who I think don't have access to good information, don't have access to truthful information or have, you know, sort of connections with folks who lead them astray. And that's going to happen. But 
you know, to be a healthcare worker, most folks are highly educated and should have access to the same information that I am able to see every single day that I spend my life looking at. And to be, yeah, to not just be hesitant, but to be anti-vaccine explodes my brain. You, you can't tell me that there are nurses and doctors watching YouTube and seeing memes on Facebook about vaccines. There must be something more to it. Uh, yeah. for, those, for those listening at home, Chloe is shrugging her shoulders and doesn't know what to say. I don't, yeah, but, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think some people are deeply anti-vaccine for issues of mistrust with the healthcare system. But then you work in the healthcare system, so I that's, I struggle there a little bit. I think people are oh gosh, guy, I don't know, help me out. I I don't know. It it's it's really hard, and it's really hard to know that those folks are taking care of our patients. Yeah, I would like to think that that it's a smaller percentage within the healthcare community than within the community that has hesitancy or an anti-vaccine stance. And knowing why is very hard. My opinion is that. There's many factors, multifactorial, what causes vaccine hesitancy from what I see from my perspective. I see sometimes a, a perhaps a Native American patient from Alaska who doesn't have access to good information that's coming in to see us. I see perhaps people from our community who are socioeconomically challenged minority populations who don't have access to information or that information that they choose to take in is from a an unreliable source. And then there's some that I just found her with when I see people that have no barriers to getting the right information that um, well-educated with no socioeconomic barriers that still hold this view. You know, when you see a patient, you go, well, are you vaccinated? No, I'm not. Well, can I help you get vaccinated? I say. And um, even though I know for a fact that nothing has stopped them getting vaccinated at this point. So the chance of me telling them now, can I help you is not going to result in a vaccine for that person, right? If they wanted it, they would have done it by now, right? So do you have any idea as a physician who's really the vaccine is like one of the essential tools in in your um, kit, how you can get people to do it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I what I have found and what a lot of my colleagues talk about is that you got to meet people where they are. Um, and there are some folks who have reasons and you can talk to them and educate and can make a ton of progress. And there are some folks who no matter what you say are not having it and not going to hear it. But until you start talking to people as individuals, you have no idea what it is. I mean, I think I made a good point that like sometimes folks are, you know, targets of misinformation. I have a lot of patients in my clinic who are targeted on Facebook and given misinformation about the vaccine. And that is just absolutely heartbreaking. But here we are with an opportunity to discuss that. So I get to do that in clinic and it's amazing. Um, but there are some people who are dug in and the information they're, that they're accessing is not, they are not being targeted. They are actively seeking it out. And there are people who no matter what we say or do are not going to get vaccinated. Yeah. And the responsibility of the, of the agencies that, um, that provide that information to the public, like social media agencies and news agencies, uh, beyond the scope of this particular podcast. But it is interesting to note that for the people that see patients, like Chloe, that you easily pick up on where the information's coming from, right? Yeah. I mean, people, people tell me yeah. all the time where they're getting their information. And oftentimes it's friends. 
But our healthcare workers do not often tell me where their information is coming from. Those those that are really not interested in this vaccine. Yeah, that's a big secret, right? <laughs> I, Chloe, do you have anything you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I, I think I was just thinking a little bit about Matt, Matt asking about sort of like where our resiliency comes from. And I just want to say that like the team of folks that I get to work at uh, work with at Harborview are just phenomenal. I mean, you guys got to meet Vanessa. Um, you did not get to meet the rest of our infection preventionists um, or John Lynch. Um, and these folks just keep me alive and keep me going and are the people who, you know, every day I get to come come to work and talk about the things that I am scared of, the things that are going well, the things that aren't going well. And as a group, we sort of push on and drive each other forward, whether it's in our personal lives or at work. And I recognize that a lot of people have not had those folks in this pandemic, that they, a lot of people don't get to go to work every day and still interact with colleagues that push them on. So I feel fortunate, super fortunate for my team and for, for my ability to keep working. So you're listening to Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries, and we're speaking with Chloe Bryson Khan. Chloe, give us all your job titles, all of them. List them. Every single one every of single them? Law, every single one of them. Okay. She's a, the infectious disease expert. Oh, okay. In, assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the University of Washington, Medical Director of Antimicrobial Stewardship at Harborview Medical Center, Associate Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at Harborview Medical Center, and newly co-medical director of the University of Washington Tele-Antimicrobial Stewardship Program. Do you have any hobbies? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sometimes I watercolor. Um, <laughs> I used to watercolor all the time. I love walking. I love cooking. Luckily, you have to cook to stay alive, so I've been able to keep doing that. <laughs> We've been speaking with Dr. Chloe Bryson Kahn. She's a professor of infectious diseases at the University of Washington and an infection control physician at Harborview Medical Center. So if there was one takeaway from our discussion with Dr. Bryson Khan, it seems to me, help me out here, the number one tool in our toolkit to get past this pandemic is the V word, vaccination. <laughs> Indeed. V for victory, V for vaccination. You're exactly right. I got the same thing from what she told us. Really, the only way that we're going to get through this pandemic is to increase our vaccination rates. This shouldn't be shocking news to anyone. If you turn on the television and you hear Dr. Anthony Fauci talk, he says exactly the same thing. Most medical experts, the vast majority of medical experts will tell you the same thing. We need to increase vaccination rates because, as Chloe pointed out, if we don't, we could be living with this virus until 2024. I'm pretty sure nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. I certainly do not want to do that. So um, come on, people. Come on, people, please. Uh, you can join us next time for Episode 4 of Emergency Room, The COVID Diaries where we will speak with Summer Cleveno-Wally, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Harborview Medical Center in Seattle. On this podcast, we have all the big names. Yes, the biggest and most important names in COVID in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
uh, joining us. Emergency Room The COVID Diaries is written and presented by Matthew Hall and Guy Madison. It's produced by Guy Madison, Matthew Hall and Ruinous Media. Music by... Mudhoney, Palm Frauds. Beauty Hunters. Plant. And if you'd like to contact us... Or you need to contact us, just go to ruinousmedia.com. That's R-U-I-N-O-U-S media m-e-d-i-a dot as in a dot com yes that's it